You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's show brings together a panel of accomplished guests who are experts in product and technology for the online video space. Our first guest is Brett Ulrich, Head of Engineering at Awesomeness TV. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. And he is joined by Rico Morer, VP of Video at Blavity and former VP Product and Technology at Omnia Media. Thanks for having me. Of course. Excited to have you both. Thanks, Rico. So let's jump right in. Tell me how each of you found your way into the online video space. So you know, I moved out here. I wanted to be a film producer. That didn't really work out. So I ended up bouncing around between a lot of different internships. Uh, ended up running into Machinima. A friend worked there. I started out there as a recruiter um, along with my buddy Luke. You know, kind of started to learn the ins and outs of, of YouTube and online video, especially like digital media, kind of new media. I put that in air quotes. But coming out of there, uh, I met up with the CEO at the company I joined later called Omnia. Uh, and essentially, he was like, you know, help me build this thing out. So how did you meet some more? So I met some more through my friend, Jimmy Chin. My friend Luke met with Jimmy. Luke said, you have to meet this guy, Jimmy. He's amazing. And so I met with Jimmy. I said, we need to hang out. And he said, I'm going to hang out with this guy, Tamor, at Earth tonight. You should come with. I came there. I ended up talking to Tamor for about like three hours, just about all the stuff that I wanted to do at Machinima that I wasn't able to do. And you know, he was essentially like, I'm building this company that's basically going to work like Machinima. And back then, it was focused on music. And so you know, rights management became a really big thing for us that I had to kind of dive into and learn. But from there, essentially, uh, I kind of got fed up at my time at Machinima, and then he realized that was the right time to pounce, uh, and then brought me over. Uh, and so, you know, when we started, it was just me and him and a Starbucks, and then, you know, we ended up selling it, like, three years later. We were at, like, 40 people, so it was pretty, pretty cool experience coming into that. So I've seen, seen all sides of it. And Brett, walk us through your experience. Yeah, so uh, I've been... So building a lot of different web applications for you know, over a decade, and I moved into the space. Actually, I, I was very interested in media uh, when I was in a, a different career, and so I, I started to get interested in media. I actually moved into the advertising space, and I was doing some some copywriting. And as I was at a portfolio school, and I said, "This isn't this isn't right. Everything's interactive. Everything's going interactive. This is what I need to be doing." And so I, I had this consultancy where I'm, I'm just building all of these products for people and I'm just keeping driving web applications into media. Um, so I worked in the startup space. I was actually recruited. I, I was at a, at a tech startup. And at that time, I was, I was thinking about, uh, I was an employee and I was thinking about kind of going back on my own again. And I was recruited hard by Zephyr. And then I, I discovered the MCM space. And uh, this was maybe... 2011, 2012, something like that. I said, well, what's going on in this, this MCN space? You know, they, these companies like need technology and we're at like this new media sort of like apex and YouTube is like paying people now and like things are starting to happen. 
And then I actually ended up going to full screen. I met a couple of really smart people there and the experience that I had in the startup community with different kinds of companies really like laid very well on top of the technology problems that we needed to solve over with that company. You know, I was there for a couple of years. I then moved out of full screen after our uh, acquisition. You know, we kind of went through a couple of a great, a couple of great fund, you know, sort of funding rounds. And after we moved into the new space, I said, you know what, I think I'm going to head back to really early stage startups. I did that for a while. And uh, then I met uh, Jen Robinson, the CTO over at Awesomeness, big fan of hers. I just really enjoyed working with her. And I said, you know what, I'm going to come over there and, you know, the technology problems that they were faced with seemed really interesting to me and uh, continued to be that way. So we've built this cool technology team over there. And in my career, it's always sort of been computer science plus X. And, you know, being in LA for, you know, over half a decade, you sort of just keep running into media again and again and again and all the different colors that go with that. And that's really, and so that's where I, I stand right now. So why, why didn't you choose to work with Zephyr early on? Why, why was full screen a better fit for you? So I think it, I, I think it was because I went in and I met, I met uh, some of the individuals over at full screen. I really liked them. The team was great. Like there was, it was a young team. We had a sort of a technology stack that I was really familiar with. Uh, we were building web applications with Rails at that time. And uh, that's where a bunch of my experience had um, come to play. I was actually writing uh, a Ruby tip every day on my blog. So like pairing with those engineers, um, you know, we, we saw eye to eye on everything. I knew Zephyr was using a little bit different technologies. And so that, that I think was probably the biggest thing was that I, I really enjoyed the people that I met there. And uh, the technology was something that I was familiar with. And I was going to be able to make a very strong impact with that team. Awesome. Do you still blog? Uh, rarely. Rarely. So I, I think I put up a blog post about once every six months, something like that. How did both of you learn to code? Are you formally schooled in computer science, self-taught? I didn't know how to code until uh, I left Omnia and then I went and did a, a boot camp for three months. So it was just like, essentially, they said it was 12 hours a day. It turns into like 16 hours a day. Um, but no, I kind of learned full stack JavaScript that way. Um, but Which boot camp did you guys do? Uh, I did Codesmith. Okay. So Codesmith, they're located in Playa Vista. Very, very good for anybody anybody looking. Uh, Codesmith.io. Uh, check it out. Uh, <laughs> Rico will give you his referral code. You give my referral code. <laughs> but yeah, but before that, you know, I've always been very much like the computer guy or the go-to computer guy, but it's always been more on kind of an, uh, an IT tip, I guess. So, you know, in college, I was an IT assistant, and you know, I've always been fixing computers and tinkering and all those other things. But usually, if I need to get something done, I would always use some random scripting thing like macros or whatever it was. So I was kind of used to the concepts of, of loops and variables and those other things, and I was really good with Excel, but I never made the jump to web development. So going to Codesmith was great because now I've got all these ideas uh, that I want to prototype and I wasn't able to prototype before, but now I can kind of do that. So I'm definitely a rookie still. And you could argue that everyone's always a rookie, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how I learned I started writing code when uh, you could customize MySpace pages. Um, so if anyone remembers back in the day when you'd look at a MySpace page and you'd have like, you know, bumblebees flashing across the entire page or like rainbows dropping from the, from the top to the bottom or marquee text going across. Those are like the first sort of like, the, that was the first foray into code that I ever had. And then my undergraduate degree is in design management, interactive media. So that is a sort of a hybrid degree. I actually did some product management. I did uh, some computer science, mostly in the world of web development. 
and then some business administration things like how to run a business, how to start a business. That was really like when I learned how to develop data-driven uh, web applications, and uh, that was a decade ago. That was an opportunity then. You know, I really dove into the web or WordPress platform at that time, and, and that was really that was a uh, an area that I focused a lot into, and that that went on for a couple of years uh, before I discovered uh, the customizable nature with the Ruby on Rails framework, and and now we use anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the team, you know, everybody comes from varied backgrounds. And so we, we pick technologies that are scalable and people can learn quickly and allow us to solve business problems as fast as possible for as long as possible. What are each of you focused on in your current roles at Blavity and at Awesomeness? So right now I'm focusing on, you know, kind of like setting up the general infrastructure of our video business. We're kind of in a position right now where... Video is new. It's this thing that we know that we can monetize, but it's still very different from editorial. And so right now, most of it is, you know, making sure that we're staffed up, making sure that we have kind of like the consistent processes uh, to, you know, create consistent content, create it cheaply, to make sure that our distribution process is kind of consistent. Everything's optimized on Facebook and all those other things. And a lot of it's just kind of, you know, one thing that I learned is that if you build the foundation off keel, uh, or if you've got cracks in the foundation, then when water gets in it and it freezes, everything goes to, you know, everything goes to hell. So uh, one thing I really try to focus on uh, at Blavity is making sure that we get it all set up right at the beginning. So then I just have to plug people into it and then it keeps on running. Uh, so that's the biggie, I think, right now. It's that and still, you know, kind of nailing down our, you know, our story for the market. Um, because you know, the thing I love about it is that we have, we have a great story, we have a great product, and I think that we really fit this niche that's just been underserved. And so now it's just a matter of making sure that, you know, we're, we're putting all the right people and processes in place to, to really kind of uh, meet that need and you know, monetize it. Two big initiatives that I... I work towards at Awesomeness TV. One of those initiatives is how does our content perform? How does our content perform across our 31 different distribution channels? You know, how do we decide to act on that knowledge? So when we when we get that information, how do we transform that information into an actionable story for the people that are making decisions about our content? Um, that's a that's a really important part to our business. The other area that I focus on is how do we actually deliver our content. How do we deliver our content to all of those different distribution channels on time, on budget, and you know, with the right credit where it's deserved? Um, and you know, the, the world that we live in, has, there's so many different devices, right? And so there's, there, there are a lot of technology solutions that need to come together in order to make that work. Um, the head of product at Awesomeness, she says, I've been trying to get video to play online for 15 years and there are still holes in the system. So that's, that's a long time, right? That's a long time. That's a, that's a lot of experience, a lot of things that we've learned. Every time that we think we've got it, something changes that makes our job more difficult, whether it be 4K, 5K, whether it be uh, live streaming events. The world is ever-changing. So. so do you guys roll your own CMS? Because if you've got a hit, like, what did you say, 32 different platforms... But then you need to monitor the performance of each individual piece of content across all of those and then roll that back up. Like, is that, 
general rule your own to, to be able to handle that, or is that kind of like what you're working on now? So there's a trend with there, there's a trend that I notice in video right now, and that is that a lot of the big video providers. So also the, this uh, one thing that I'll, I'll segue into here is that the the functionality of traditional media mm-hmm. and the functionality of digital media are converging very fast. Mm-hmm. They're like coming together um, at an amazing rate. I think that this idea of traditional media acting different than digital media as far as the technology stack is concerned is going away um, in a very short period of time. So that what that means is that people that have been delivering online video for a long time, when they were they delivered a singular approach. So they delivered something like, oh, we will manage your metadata for you, or we will manage your transcoding for you. And a lot of these big providers, Comcast, Verizon, Uyala, JW Player, they're all developing and they're all pushing towards a holistic approach. They're all saying, hey, you can join our platform and we will provide an end-to-end solution for you. There's still holes in that everywhere. But everybody's pushing in that direction. Everybody says, hey, we want to become that holistic uh, distribution platform for you. And my job over the last five years has been, well, where does that holistic approach fall apart for our needs as an organization? And that's when we have to make the decision, well, do we buy it or do we build it? And if we buy another solution that, that mixes in, how do we integrate that? Uh, if we build it, how do we integrate that? Yeah, both of you have long-standing experience in the MCN online video industry. So from your time at full screen, your time at Mission and Omnia, how have you seen the industry evolve and what has been the, uh, the corresponding change in the needs for technology? Well, I know that back in my day, like way back in the day at Machinima, we said that data was very important, but we didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, and I think that what's been interesting is, you know, as as data and machine learning and AI have become more in vogue and more people are actually try, starting to understand kind of how those can affect things. At least in my time at Omnia, that was what we were really pushing for is I think MCNs are in a very interesting position where they've got there's only a few companies that have access to as much data or as much YouTube data uh, and as much content performance data as MCNs do. And I think that, you know, they each have this really big kind of swath of, of what really only YouTube has uh, that they can learn from and, and do stuff with and they can train their algorithms with if they wanted to. And now I've been at the MCN game for about like a year or so. So I don't know kind of, how everybody's looking at it now, but I remember when I was leaving, that was what I was super excited about was, okay, now we have all this data on when are people clicking off or, you know, how, how do these comments correlate to what's going on uh, in the videos? Or if you're going to do like text analysis on the videos, and then we're going to correlate that with, you know, where the spikes in retention go, you know, how do you take those insights and then give those to partners to make better content? And I know that there's been more of a focus on just, you know, how to get more actionable insights out of data now. And I think that a lot of companies are popping up to let people do that or, you know, to distribute their content quicker or whatever it is. But yeah, I don't know if I'd be the authority on what's going on technologically nowadays, you know, since I'm more focused on the content, but uh, back in my day, that was, that was like the big trend. You make an interesting point about the data. So I think that the data tools have, have reached a level of abstraction that many people have access to them where previously if you wanted to know something about your video content, you had to be an expert in YouTube CMS and you had to be an expert in uh, sort of like uh, the business analysis tools and tools like 
Looker, we don't actually use Looker, but I've seen their product are becoming very popular within uh, organizations for people that aren't necessarily data savvy to be able to pull insights away from that. And I think that that helps sort of drive a data-driven approach, which is really interesting. The biggest change that I've seen, I think, in the last few years has been this, I think it's really challenging for grassroots creators to make an impact now than it was five years ago. When YouTube was kind of like a, a, like a, it was like a cult thing, right? Like to become like a YouTube creator, like that was, it was a little bit easier, I think. It was like your only competition. Now you have, you have sites all over the place and you have distribution channels all over the place, place and you have to impress all of them to become a, a creative force in the marketplace. And I, I think that's probably unfortunate for some. I think probably some young creators are going to get a little discouraged and maybe decide to go do different things because they're not going to see the kind of impact that some of those initial like YouTube creators had where they blew up and all of a sudden they were like famous and kids want to be YouTube stars, but it's more than just being a YouTube star right now. But those YouTube stars are all well-funded. They have high production value now. I think that's the biggest change is that people that come onto the market now are going to have to be really intelligent about how they manage their audiences across different social platforms. And that takes a lot of work. I think it's a lot more work than it used to take. As we've seen that, all of that change happen, what do you perceive as the challenges today in designing and building products within a fast-growing new media company? The APIs change a lot. I think that's always tricky. And, and also just like the amount of stuff that the platforms will let you have access to is, I'd say, the hardest part, right? Because on my end, not necessarily from a technical standpoint, but just from a, from like a traffic standpoint, you know, you look at Facebook and everybody knows that they have to be on Facebook, but Facebook changes the algorithm every like three months and completely messes up your, your strategic plan. Um, and so, but you see the same thing on, you know, the API side, um, I would imagine. So kind of as the insights that you need change and as I think, you know, these platforms get more precious with the data that they're going to let people use, you know, that's always the risk. If you're dependent on other platforms for your whole business, then building for those platforms, you've always got these like regulatory issues that you might not have if you were building for like a different industry. And some of the emerging platforms like Snapchat don't really have... They don't let you do anything. They don't have any APIs, right? <laughs> yeah. Or even, you know, Vine and Instagram have yeah. very limited uh, information that they expose publicly today. Totally. Even Facebook, to a degree, they, they challenge the way that advertisers want to work with the platform. They say, you know, we have the users and we get to make the rules. And uh, just because you did it this way before doesn't mean you get to do it this way anymore. And that, that brings a lot of power to a very established industry. Uh, it pushes against that, which is, which is really interesting, actually, to see how brands, you know, sort of need to change their scope. The, you know, the older brands and the, old, the older agencies... They have to continually think different as well. They have to continually think about, well, you know, we can try and hack something onto the platform, but what's that going to do for our relationship with Facebook moving forward, right? Some of the, some of the real big challenges I think that we face as a technology team within an organization is we're, we're challenged with a lot of third-party solutions. And, you know, the, the sort of Andreessen quote that's very famous is, you know, software is eating the world. And... Because of this, there are a lot of people in the organization that don't turn to the internal technology team. They turn to a third-party solution first, and that does solve a problem, right? And, and it's very possible that a third-party solution can solve the problem better 
than, uh, than we could build, right? It, it maybe it can be more cost-effective. Not in all cases, though. In, in a lot of cases, those third-party providers don't have a vested interest in making sure that our company succeeds, right? We're just a line item. We're just another customer for them, and they want to sign us up for a plan, and they, they want to kind of just run on autopilot after that. And that's unfortunate. I love software companies that want to work with us and be a partner with us. Like those are, those are really great partnerships that help us, right? It helps us save, helps us uh, with our budget internally. And oftentimes, you know, if they are a good partner for us, they'll learn about our business and they'll adapt their products to be better for us. But that's not always the case. And because that barrier to entry to a lot of third party solutions is very low, you find that people will go rogue in uh, different areas of the organization, whether it be programming or marketing or even technology uh, themselves. <laughs> even other engineers on the team will go and buy something. You know, it starts out really inexpensive, but then more sort of uh, shackled to it for a little while. It's not always best for the organization. I think it's a it's a, a much more diverse landscape with all of the tools that are out there, all the technology tools specifically. Um, that can help a company, and it becomes a little confusing sometimes. I can imagine, like, just the complexity that each of these new third-party integrations adds to your overall stack. If something in in the third-party thing, like, breaks, all of a sudden now everything else that was connected to that is broken, and you guys don't have access to the code base to go fix it. That's right. Oh, man, yeah, that must be rough. Yeah, it's challenging. <laughs> right? If something breaks on one of our applications, we are notified. We can go. We can make changes. We're agile. We're, we have continuous integration, so we're very fast mm-hmm. to make changes with that infrastructure. But when it's a third party, it makes it a lot harder. So how do you evaluate those third-party software partners? That's a good question. Um, it, de- it depends on how they affect our business. So... Certain things that we do as a business are critical and will be around for a long time. So like I was looking the other day at analytics tools for some of our internal applications. And I was going through Mixpedal, Kissmetrics, Heap Analytics. These people should be getting me some affiliate <laughs> talking about their companies. And this was a this was a, a, a pretty low impact situation. This isn't going to be a very expensive integration. I had the opportunity where I could basically try out one for an hour or two, watch some traffic through our internal applications, see if I liked it, see if we'd be able to use it, see if the other engineers were going to want to interact with it, see if people outside of the engineering and product team are going to want to interact with this and if they're going to find value there. Additionally, if we do need to make a change, how can we uh, how can we export this data or something like that? That's a pretty sort of like basic approach, right? Just go ahead and try it, right? It's, you know, there's a 14-day trial. Other integrations... We think about a lot. We think about, okay, is this company going to be around? Is, is this company going to be around in 12 months? Like, who are the people that are behind this organization? And if something goes wrong, what's support look like? Cost is always an issue. If, you know, we were to multiply out the cost of this product, using it for two or three years, what is that, what's that going to be versus having us build it, right? Could we duplicate this technology in a very short period of time? Um, I think like when we see a product, uh, one example is uh, ETL software. So um, ETL uh, software on top of a data warehouse, you're grabbing data from all these different uh, social sources. Uh, you have to you know, uh, transform it. And there are a lot of solutions, and they're, they're getting pretty good. You, you basically sign up for the service. They listen to a couple of uh, S3 buckets in your system, and they'll move data around for you. We looked at it. We looked at the price, and... You know, a couple other engineers and I sat down and we kind of talked about it. We're like, we can actually rebuild this product in about a day's time. 
And we did so. And we didn't end up writing that check. Um, so, you know, there is some cost there, right? Because our engineering team has, a, has an hourly rate, right? That has an effect on the business. But over the course of two months, we made back anything that we would have spent on the software. Awesome. Who do you guys think are doing a good job of building software in the, like, the new media world today? So I have, a, I have like a, a laundry list of competitors. I have like my heroes in the media space. Sort of like some, some big players, I think, that um, took a while to come on board but are doing a good job. I think the New York Times is doing a great job. I think the New York Times is uh, doing some uh, interesting stuff. They're blogging about technology. They've been doing it for a while. They're thinking about different formats. Um, they're slow to move. I think that you know other players, Vox. Vox is Vox, Vox has got a, a really interesting... Uh, team, I think that they uh, they're they're a, a blog that I follow and I, I listen to. And they um, open source their stuff. They do. They do have some open source uh, things that are around. There is actually another uh, media company that you know they're not, a media company might not be the right definition for them, but there's a company out of New York called Artsy, and they are they basically want to become the basically the single source of truth for all art inside of our human canon. And they've done like the, the human genome project, but basically for the art world. And they've open sourced a ton of software, which is really interesting about how they build their app, how they scale their app. And they effectively are a media company. They, they sell art on their platform. That's how they make their money. But the real, the real joy of that company, the thing that they're trying to do is deliver this in a digital world that is as good as looking at it in a gallery. And that's really important. So that, that's interesting. Of course, I think BuzzFeed makes a lot of news about their technology stack. They have they, um, Dow over there, the, the blog post that she writes about, she's, she's actually a publisher. Um, she's a publisher, incredibly intelligent, and drives uh, some really serious technology products over there. Um, What's the thing that they built that lets you see um, what gets shared and you can kind of see the full kind of like 3D picture of, of that network effect. So they have a product called Pound that they blog about. That's it, yeah, yeah, Pound. And so you can actually see it in action when you go to any uh, page on BuzzFeed and uh, you can see the Pound in the URL. And Medium has a similar technology as well that they use. Rico, anything to add? People you keep an eye on from a product or technology standpoint? People that I keep an eye on. I think you named most of them. Box, Box and BuzzFeed were kind of my two biggies, I guess. And obviously Netflix. Just from a product perspective, I think Netflix is incredible. Um, but I think most people would say that. The transformation inside of Netflix is actually really interesting of how they've gone from a distribution-only network to a serious content provider. Mm-hmm. You know, I was we opened Netflix over the, over the holiday, and I was looking at their sort of like featured or recommended series and overwhelmingly, 80% of those titles were all Netflix originals. And that's something that I think even two years ago, there might have been two, right? They started out with uh, the Norwegian oh, yeah. organized crime thriller, right? And that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, but then they had a couple, of course, big hits, which we all know and talk about. And now it's a huge part of what's happening over there. Of course, now Comcast is going to offer that product uh, just through their regular TV application, which is an interesting move. That also helps solidify this idea that I have that traditional media and new media are just, they're converging very quickly. Yeah, and then... Give us some examples. Where do you see that happening? I think we see that with the... We understand what it takes to deliver video online and that now that it makes sense to, you know, now, now that it makes sense how it's going to work, everybody can do it. Everybody mm-hmm. can participate. And 
And so you look at Comcast, you look at Verizon. Verizon, of course, AOL, they, they buy AOL. They have an interest in, in us. You know, that is, we're talking about major, huge organizations, right? You know, multi-billion dollar conglomerates. And they're starting to look at what's happening on the ground. And they're very interested in it because they want eyeballs on their distribution channels. And it makes sense, you know, if you look at the people who control the pipes also now wanting to get into the content, right? So if, if you look at a, a Comcast or a Verizon, right, especially Verizon, because once we get 5G, it's like not going to matter, right, whether you're on your Wi-Fi or whether you're actually, you know, getting your, you know, on, on the cell signal, right? Like, I think to them, at the end of the day, you know, they say... Unless you put on a VR headset, that will matter. Then it will be sluggish again. <laughs> the, the level of creativity will, will continue to push it forward, right? Unless the pressure gets better. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and I think that, you know, it, it's interesting to look at those guys getting into content and saying, okay, well, we're already charging for, maybe not Verizon, but a Comcast, right? Comcast says, we're already, we're already charging them for cable, and now we're charging them for the internet, and we want them using more of all of it. So how do we make it easier for them to do that? Uh, and it's like, okay, well, let's just like combine all this stuff. So if they want Netflix, let's give them the Netflix. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see, well, now, now that the actual like large media companies are realizing this isn't going anywhere, you know, I think they've always known that they were going to have to move it at some point. They were going to have to give everybody everything everywhere. But you know, they're mature companies, so they can say, okay, well, we're going to wait as long as we have to before we have to bite this. and But now I can get my NBC on my Apple TV. I can get all of my regular shows on Apple TV. I've had cable for five years, um, but everything that I would have, I've just got now. So I, I totally see where you're coming from. I've never paid for cable. I, I did uh, have it included in, in a, a situation that I was living in uh, <laughs> at one point, uh, but I've never paid for cable. I always just paid for internet, but that's part of being a technologist too, and that's it's really interesting. What are the gaps today in terms of product or technology for new media companies? Gaps. Workflow is still a gap. Workflow, there's still so many pieces that are coming together. And I'm encouraged at how this will change over the next 24 months. I think that it will become easier. I think more people are becoming technology evangelists inside of media and content companies. I think it's becoming like table stakes for people that want to join you yourself, right? You're you're on the content side, but you previously came from technology. Yeah. That gives you an advantage, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that that's what's happening. And and so as that happens, um, people are going to understand that. Uh, but the workflow of you know having a courier who comes and drops a DVD off at your door, and then you review it, and then you you know go on and write an email to a producer somewhere and say, well, this is broken. You know that's done, right? That 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 world is over. Everything is delivered digitally. Can you elaborate on the question a little bit? Sure. So, you know, there's a number of, we had MCNs, we had MCNs building technology, right? There's, there seems to be a trend away from MCNs building internal tools, maybe in some cases still building products to handle external distribution, interview with other partners, or build tools specifically for creator communities or serve brands. Right. But I agree with the workflow gap analysis. Where are there other product gaps mm-hmm. from an MCN standpoint or from others participating in the online video space today? Gotcha. I feel like MCNs started getting into engineering because they needed a way to differentiate themselves to up their valuation. So I think for MCNs, you know, their their bread and butter is partner management and content management. And, you know, as long as they're meeting those, then they're probably fine. This, you know, brands fund media, right? So brands fund media and uh, there's still lack of visibility. Companies like Tubular, um, companies like Comscore, you know, the product is 
you know, it, it serves, it served brands, um, for a very long time. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space to, um, serve data to brands that, you know, will help them make the, the right decision on who they should partner with as far as the content creation houses. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think that also there's a world that we're embracing of, you know, artificial intelligence has a place in content creation that previously it doesn't. And I think we're, this is, this is like a good idea that is going to become a dumb idea um, that will become a good idea again. I think we're in this sort of wall where like people are like, okay, we see this happening where computers are getting smarter. And if we train our models the right way, they can, they can provide us a lot of information, but in the world of like media creation and things like that, um, people that are very experienced that have this strong canon of creative and artistic history to pull from, they, the, the AI engines still don't kind of, they can't really stand up to that yet. But that's something that I think probably in the next, you know, five years, I don't know, it may take longer, right? Yeah, there's definitely workflow. There's any way to improve brand relationships. And then, of course, what's happening with, uh, you know, data science and things like that around uh, helping content creators uh, make the most effective content. Yeah, I've seen, in terms of reporting, right, you know, there's a lot of, at least in the companies that I've looked at, right, sales still does a lot of manual work in terms of reporting on campaign performance or, you know, how anything's going or whatever it is. And they're always pulling these things to put their decks together and all that other stuff. And I haven't seen kind of an end-to-end solution to make it easy for them to do that. You know, because there's a lot of just, like, manual pulling that account execs or, you know, their account managers have to do. But I think that, you know, just kind of end-to-end reporting for brands on how social is doing uh, would be really, really interesting. But also, I think, like you said, the, the AI informing content, when that goes from a bad idea to a good idea, when it finally makes that last jump, I think that's really, really cool. What do you think about the mad rush of providers uh, building subscription video services or live streaming platforms or influencer marketplaces? There's a lot of people chasing each of these individual dreams. What's your take on those? I think it all consolidates at some point. Like influencer, influencer marketing... You got, I just pulled like a report together yesterday. There's like 50 of those companies. Easily. You know? <laughs> and, and they all have the same kind of back end where it's like, okay, well, we're going to connect this influencer's five platforms and then we'll just show that in a nice little front end for everybody to look at. And then it goes to whoever's managing that person. And that's like it. Uh, the technological solution there is grabbing the data from the social network. Something that it's not a technological solution, yes. it's a sales tool. And that, and that's really all it is. It's it's uh, you can people have been doing this forever, but they did it on paper, right? They do it in Excel docs, mm-hmm. and so Niche was the first one that gets that gets picked up by Twitter ages ago, and uh, maybe ages ago, two years ago, right? Uh, that's ages ago in technology. Niche is the first one, and we have a couple of players in the market that seem to have. Uh, they, they kind of keep coming up. You know, the Relio and Faintbit. You know, Fullscreen had a product uh, for a number of years. It isn't a technological solution. So it isn't a technological solution if you can figure out how to get creators to create the correct content and evaluate that content. That becomes a technological solution. I think probably the people that are in the space that have been doing it for a while are probably closer than the than the new people that are out in the market. Other than that, it's still just it's a phone call and an email game. Yeah. And that, frankly, isn't isn't super interesting to me. So you, you talk about uh, yeah, where where these things go. You know, I think it gets to the point where 
brands are going to get savvy enough with these creators that they can just reach out to the manager individually. And the manager's probably going to have their favorite tool that they like to use in this space. To the point about video distribution, because we sort of know the rules now about how this works, if you go to JW Player and you look at how to build one of these things, if you go to VideoJS, which now is owned by Brightcove, all of their blog posts on how to build this stuff, they're all from 2014. That's when, like, the framework of, like, the SBOT platform was, like, new and challenging in the world of technology. Like, how are we going to build this Netflix? Netflix, of course, is probably the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there were some others. Of course, YouTube, but they weren't SBOT. It was all ABOT. But we sort of know how to do this now. And I think that what happens is that you get these big distribution companies that will have their – they'll pick up the best in breed, and they'll use those for their distribution – but I think that actually there's probably going to be a lot of power that's going to be handed off to new creators where for a monthly subscription, they'll probably be able to create a multi-distribution channel network yeah. out of the box. If they have $200, $300 a month, they'll probably be able to get something where they can launch a video a week and then submit it to the uh, app store and they'll have an Apple TV app and it will all be push button for them. There are already consultancies that have built this sort of technology and it's, it's a, a, a barrier to entry, right? It costs a lot of money, but the cost will come down yeah. all of that. And I, I think that that's actually, you know, earlier I talked about how it becomes harder to become a creator. But as the technology becomes uh, commoditized, these sorts of uh, these syndication tools are going to become a lot easier for creators. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. I just got hit up by one of those consultancies like a week ago. They said, oh, we've seen your content, and we think that you know you guys would be really well served to have an Apple TV app, and a Roku app, and all these other things, and we'll get all that for you out of the box. I was like, oh, that's really easy now. <laughs> what are you two most excited about at the moment? Pokemon Go. <laughs> it just came out today. I didn't get to... Uh, I haven't seen what Pokemon around here yet, but that's that's pretty awesome. I don't, I don't know. Okay, so it's basically like AR Pokemon. And so so it's like I've got my character, and then it's got Google Maps, you know, where my character is, and I walk, and then it moves, right? And then there's basically like there's gyms, there's places where you can get more Pokeballs, and there's rare Pokemon around and stuff, and it's just really, really cool. So if we both had Pokemon Go on our phones right now, could we battle? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I think, I don't know if there's, if each of you battle or you have to, like, fight the Pokemon, but I think you can battle. And if it's not, if you can't battle, then they're going to turn that into, like, a feature very, very soon. No, right now you can't trade. That's what it is. I think you can battle at the gyms, but you can't trade. But just, like, I've been watching the, the response to it on Reddit. And people are freaking out, and the servers are going down, and they're they're starting to kind of like window it uh, worldwide. But there's something very, very cool about, and I think part of it's just the nostalgia of, oh my god, this is Pokemon. But at the same time, there's something really cool about, like, you know, this is me on the map, right? And I can't move my character unless I actually move, right? But I see all these things like around me. And, and these are all these places where I can pick up Pokeballs or whatever it is, but I actually have to go there, right? Like I can totally see myself going home today, taking my dog for a walk and, like, seeing if I can, like, pick up some, some Pokemon. There's something really powerful about that and the AR that they have on there where, you know, I can, I can be in this room and then there will be a Pokemon over there. I throw my Pokeball at it. There's just, like, a lot of people who are going to, I think a lot of the landmarks in there are, like, churches, 
right? And they were saying there's this weird thing where a lot of people who don't go to church are feeling awkward, like, going to church to pick up more Pokeballs. But they're finding people who are going there specifically for that purpose. And so all of a sudden, these people who would never meet before are now, like, meeting up in all these different places because, you know, they're playing this, like, one game. And I don't know, it feels like it's on the verge of something, like, bigger, Mm -hmm. right? Because they released it as an April Fool's joke. I think it was last year. And they said, oh, Google Maps is going to do, you know, Pokemon. Then everyone got really, really excited. They said this could be a thing. And they're getting crazy downloads and all this other stuff and ridiculous engagement. And I don't know. I just like to see more things like that. So, you know, I've always been really big on VR and AR anyway. So I think this is a great kind of example of where AR might be going. Well, a couple of big things uh, in the media world that are super interesting to me. One is I'm really excited that... Snapchat continues to be a fun platform. It, it continues to sort of impress and delight people in ways that I, I think that a, a traditional consumption of media doesn't do. And I, I think that that's really neat. I, I'm really excited at sort of more things that are like that. Um, I think that that's really cool. Um, additionally, this idea of teaching computers how to do things is really fascinating to me. And you know, nobody seems, well, I shouldn't say nobody, there are some people, but it is um, in things like finance and, and medicine, people have been doing this for a long time, but we have a lot of opportunity in media to embrace these sort of new technologies. So I, I'm really, really excited how we start to train computers um, to work in the media business with us. Brett, you are also the CEO and head of engineering for CoOwn, property management software for co-ownership of cars, homes, real estate, and more. What prompted you to start that business? I really like this idea that our properties, our places that we that we live in the world, kind of transcend us as people. I also was in a co-ownership situation, and I wanted some workflow tooling to like make that a little easier. So I built some things. That's where the initial idea of CoOwn came to pass. Now, for me, it becomes a situation to just really embrace uh, technology in our sort of the, the world that we live in. Um, Internet of Things, of course, is part of that. You know, we share our space with a lot of different people, and those people all have sort of like different access levels. There's like certain rooms, even in this space that we're in, where I probably shouldn't open the door and see like a bunch of servers in the closet or something like that. You know, you might not want me to like poke around and pull any books, so maybe there's like some access that I could not. Uh, see? Spoken like a true engineer. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the server at? <laughs> but there's also this idea that like when when a space isn't being used, somebody else can use it. And an Airbnb is, is like a really cool tool um, that allows people to like gain more use out of a space, right? If I'm not there, if I'm not at my house for a couple of weeks, somebody else can go ahead and, and use that space. Um the, the problem becomes, like, what are the rules that we set up around that? And technology can help solve some of those problems. And Cohen helps to do that. So what are you seeing people using the platform for? It's the most popular use case. The most popular use case is actually document management for shared property, which is, uh, you know, which is fantastic, right? You have secure document management for uh, shared property, and that becomes the main use case for that application right now. And what are your ambitions for the program? Uh, without giving away all of my secrets, there are... Um, <laughs> The Internet of Things is a very disjointed and broad statement right now. I think it's really hard for people that are not technologists to embrace the opportunity that's there. And I'd like to make that easier for people. 
you know, when I was a kid, I liked to hook up things like stereos. Like that was like, I like lived behind the TV. You know, well, I probably lived in front of it playing video games more, but, uh, but, I, but I was the one that sort of took the initiative with all of those things in our household. And, you know, that was intimidating for, uh, you know, my parents and it still is intimidating for my parents and technology is a wonderful thing. It makes life really great. And I'd like to, uh, you know, give uh, more people that don't know how to configure door locks that, that they need to open a port on their router, right? Like that's, that's like a thing that's like, oh, you have to be a little techie to be able to figure that out. And uh, it should be easy. Let's switch gears and uh, talk through some rapid fire questions. Cool. Okay. What is the best piece of product advice you've ever received? Get it in front of people and watch them. You know, it's super duper simple. But uh, there was an episode of Silicon Valley that it hit a home where basically they showed the thing to all of all their friends are engineers. They showed a product to a bunch of engineers, and then you know it hits the real world, and everyone's like, "I don't understand how this thing works." Uh, and I ran into so many times, you know, back at Omnia where we would spend all this time building something, and then people don't want to use it because it's like unintuitive or whatever. Uh, and even if it's just a matter of getting the wireframes in front of them or whatever it is, right? Just like don't be afraid to get bad feedback because that's what you need to make it what it needs to be. Gosh, so, so many great products. So many great products that I worked with. You know, I, I sort of fall in love with all of them at some point during the project. I, I think that there was a quote, I think it's a Steve Jobs quote that I, I heard through another person recently, and that is, while you're iterating, I always plan to build something wonderful next. And... That has really stuck with me in recent time because we do a lot of iteration and iteration is like small improvements, right? But to make a really big impact, I want to build something wonderful next. And, and that's something that I, I, I think about in all of the team communication and all of the pull requests that we review as a team and all of our product planning meetings. And then alternatively, sort of like boots on the ground kind of thing. We build products. We don't write code as our jobs. <laughs> We write code as a as a means, but uh, building products is our job. That's what that's what we do. How about failures? What were some of the biggest product failures you've had, and what did you learn from them? We tried to do a big bang launch for this uh, redesign of our dashboard, and the main mistake that I made was not running, building new features, and doing the redesign in parallel because we didn't want to do like double the work. But essentially, we went for like a few months, basically, where the partners weren't seeing anything new, right? Because we had this huge, awesome, big thing coming up the pipeline. But again, going back to, you got to put stuff in front of them in order to make sure that, you know, you're building the right things. We took like a big gamble on on that. You know, we ended up getting it out. It ended up getting delayed and all these other things. And it was just like, you know, I look at it. I remember I made the decision in January. I looked back at it in, in basically July and I was like, what the fuck are we doing for the last six months? Um, so, you know, never going to do that again. All those MySpace pages that I don't <laughs> Can you still customize my MySpace page? I don't think you did it. It took away the functionality. Away all of that. Oh, they, that's that's the, the social network trend. You know, let's see, some of, some of the bigger failures have been a lot of products that, have, that we've built that, have, that we have failed, right? I think probably like some of, I'm not going to talk about specifics here, but uh, some of the, the products that I think have been like the biggest failure was uh, the, there were products where I didn't participate or I didn't speak up soon enough about something. And, you know, it, 
also uh, to that to that in that same thread, not petitioning other team members to feel empowered to speak up. So whoever is leading the project, like having a having a, a really like cohesive understanding about how everybody's feeling and thinking about things um, is really important to the project and to the team in general. Um, and it's something that I love to embrace on my team right now is even people that this is like their first job, I want to hear what they're thinking, right? Because they have perspectives that are different. And just because someone has 10 years more experience than them doesn't necessarily mean that this younger person's input won't help them. And that's what's really uh, that's an important thing. Yeah, good perspective. Yeah. Uh, have you read any good books recently? So I just got an Audible membership. It's awesome. I'm an addict. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Addict, yeah. Let's see. Ego is the Enemy was really, really good. It's a quick listen. Um, I'm listening to, there's Ego is the Enemy, Obstacle is the Way. Also very, very good. It's kind of like a quick primer on stoicism. Um, Ryan Holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very good. Uh, and then right now I'm listening to Extreme Leadership. Uh, and it's basically, and if you get the audible, so it's these two Navy SEALs. And they're just talking about, you know, their time in, uh, in Iraq. And then they've created this leadership consultancy for, uh, you know, like Fortune 500 companies. Uh, but it's great because you're listening to it, and it's these two actual Navy SEALs who narrate. So they're talking about, so here's what happened. And, you know, they've got the very deep Navy SEAL voices, but then you'll hear them start talking about how they were coaching this, like, VP at, at like, GE or whatever. And so it's funny to hear them, like, bounce back and forth between those things. But, you know, just the overall concept of, you know, like, uh, there's no bad teams, only bad leaders, and essentially... You have to take ownership of everything that happens under you, no matter like whose fault it was. It's been a really good listen so far. So I, I am an audible addict, uh, a podcast addict, uh, a little bit. We uh, just finished uh, listening to uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, nice. uh, which is a great book, really fun, very easy to listen to. We were on a road trip and decided to uh, finish that one. So that one's very fun. Other uh, fiction book that I'm in right now uh, is Thomas Pynchon. I always try to challenge myself, so The Crying a Lot, 49. You know, if you can, uh, if you can sort of see through his very descriptive nature, um, fantastic stories. Definitely recommend those. Um, on the nonfiction realm, uh, high output uh, management by Andy Grove. Um, finished that one recently. Classic. Yeah, very very good book. Um, and then also uh, originals by Adam Grant, uh, which is a, a another. Uh, a, book that I would I'd recommend to uh, most people. Uh, if you're looking for a perspective on um, creativity and sort of the modern world and making a difference. What's coming next? If you had to make two or three predictions about the online video industry, what would you say? I've been looking at Africa recently. Um, you know, just it's part of like the blavity thing. Um, we're trying to figure out how to be kind of hit all parts of the diaspora. But I think what's going to be interesting there and then just like, you know, kind of uh, countries that don't necessarily have technology the technological infrastructure yet is as data get cheap as data gets cheaper those are going to open up as big markets i think for media um so i'm really interested in looking at because in, and also the way that you pay there is so different right so um, my buddy he works at uh this company called uh, iraco or iroco i forget how you pronounce it but they're an sfod uh platform uh for nollywood movies which is like the nigerian hollywood and what he was telling me is that they'll do, they take, uh, they take their subscription fees and wire transfers, 
cash on delivery. And basically people there don't trust credit cards. And so they're having to figure out how do we take actual cash uh, from all these people. So, you know, and moreover, the data costs over there are so high that most of the business comes from the U.S. Um, but I do think it's going to be interesting moving forward as mobile becomes you know, more prevalent and data gets cheaper. You know, what are consumption patterns going to look like globally in those markets that uh, we haven't really seen yet? And so I think there's going to be a lot of really cool opportunities to see new types of content coming out of there as well because now all of a sudden you've got all these new audiences that you didn't have before. That and VR. VR is going to be everything. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I probably have made a couple of predictions you know, throughout the course of this conversation already, but there's some things that are really interesting to me. I'm really interested to understand and see how Facebook uses all of their different properties um, to grow as a really powerful medium for humanity. You know, Instagram has made a lot of changes in the last year. Remarkably, they turned off API access for many people um, back in, in the spring. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're getting serious about it in, in ways that uh, they're getting serious about content distribution in ways that um, previously the social landscape uh, maybe weren't thinking about. And so I'm interested to see, like, what's going to happen there, how these different formats um, really start to embrace their audiences and the movements around them. I think that we're going to see, you know, much like how we we know how video performs on a television screen and how it's moved into the online world, we're going to see different formats um, become really interesting. People are learning how different formats work. People are learning how VR works, right? And people are learning how vertical screens work. And I'm, I'm really excited um, to see how uh, really great, talented people use these different distribution channels, not only funneling things online, but different mediums entirely. Yeah. Yeah. Brett, if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? Well, I would develop amazing workflow and data <laughs> tools for Awesomeness TV. Uh, so I, I often think, you know, at Awesomeness TV, you know, we're building such a technology coalition within the company. And we started, you know, when I came there, you know, I feel like we've made some really big steps since I've, since I've been there. I think of it as a, as a, as a client relationship, like awesomeness TV is our number one client. And we build tools that, that serve that those initiatives, which are really cool. Brian Robbins vision is, is really, really interesting. He's got a, a great taste for, uh, young adult content and uh, young people, and you know we we're building tools there that I could take anywhere, right? Like the the stuff that we're that we're doing there, uh, you know. Hopefully, uh, you know, and there's no reason why this wouldn't happen. We're we're a great force within Awesomeness TV, but uh, this this is a cool space in room. I really love what I'm doing. Rico, what about you? I have a few ideas. One would be a payroll company for digital media companies that have to do small, small scale productions. Anyone on the podcast, you can have that one. Uh, but one thing, I don't know if it's a digital video company, but it would have a video component is I think that there should be, you know, like a, it would be a ride share, but there should be something where I can log, I can do tech support for people from my phone and get paid on either like a case or an hourly basis. So right now I have TeamViewer installed on all my parents' computers. And anytime they have, you know, trouble, I can log in on my phone and go like troubleshoot it, or I could do it, you know, from my actual computer. And I think that 
there's a lot of people who could use that service. You run into kind of privacy issues and those type of things, you know, getting like unobstructed access to the computer, but that's something that you can work out. Uh, but I think that would be really interesting because then I don't have to drive around and do Lyft, right? Like I just have a queue of people who need my help on like random little things, come up with a nice little taxonomy for it. Uh, and then, you know, in my spare time when I'm killing time or whatever, I just go in and fix somebody's computer and then make 20 bucks. And I think people would be willing to pay for that. Very clever. That is a good idea. Well, where can people find out more about Eureka and more about Blavity? Um, you can find out about Blavity on Blavity.com. Uh, you can find out about me. I don't have too much public stuff. Uh, you can check out my Instagram. Uh, a lot of pictures of my dog, who is DJ Rico. Uh, or check me out on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only Rico more on there. Right on. <laughs> Brad, where do we track you down? All of my information is at Software Habits. Um, and uh, so I have, uh, I have worked to collect as many software habit handles as I possibly can. And uh, also uh, Brett Yu. So uh, that's uh, LinkedIn. You can find me as Brett Yu. And of course, all the information is over at softwarehabit.com or brettyu.com. I love it. Everyone go out, connect with these guys, find out what they're up to, keep track of all the cool things that they're working on. And a big thank you guys for being on the show. So Thanks, cool to, to geek out about product and technology stuff. We're writing the future of the space uh, every day, right? And the work that you do at Awesome is the, the stuff that's going on at Blavity. Uh, you guys have seen what's happened in the landscape for, for many, many years, and there's so much left to do. So it's interesting to pick your brains about what's going well today, where there's still opportunity, where are the gaps. So thank you for sharing your perspectives. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.